Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to GranthamChurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. John and I are very pleased to be with you this morning and talk to you a little bit about our experiences working in medical missions. We've been missionaries in Africa, in the southern African country of Zambia, and I think you all know the theme for this Sunday is the Great Commission during COVID. And while we're very familiar with the Great Commission and uh, how that's affected our lives and the lives of our families, uh, talking about COVID is not quite as easy, I must confess. However, there is a lot to say. In fact, I think although COVID has certainly impacted all of us in many different ways, as well as people throughout the world and even in Zambia, it's primarily in Zambia affected people in the cities and hasn't reached the area of southern Zambia where we work, at least not right around Macha. That doesn't mean it won't come. It'll be there soon. But let's set the stage for what we mean when we talk about the Great Commission. Many of you are familiar with that term, and of course the best place to start is in the scriptures. Please follow along with me as I read to you Matthew chapter 28 and verses 18 to 20. The setting here was that Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, and it was after his resurrection and not long before his ascension. He had met with his disciples on a mountain near Galilee. And this is what he said to them, starting in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As followers of Jesus, we take these verses seriously. And not just as some general advice that Jesus gave to his disciples that day. But in fact, it's a command to all of us, even to today. I'd also like to read some additional verses. These are found in John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35. And the setting for these were that before Jesus' crucifixion, he met with his disciples before the Passover feast. And after having a meal together, remember, he washed his feet. And then this is what he said to them. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And again, we believe these words of Jesus apply to us even in 2020. So today we'd like to talk about how we believe these two portions of scripture work together and how they've influenced our lives in ways that we certainly never expected.
Esther and I came of age during the Vietnam War when the U.S. was sending young men uh, overseas uh, into military service. Um, but also there was the alternate, alternate service where young men from an Anabaptist tradition who were conscientious objectors um, went all around the world for service, including to Southern Africa. We met some of those men when we were together at Messiah College. We both grew up in pastor's families, and so mission service was very valued in our growing up and as part of who we were. I received an educational deferment to go to medical school, and by the time I finished my medical training, uh, the draft had ended. But we decided we still wanted to do a couple years of, of service before we settled down to life in North America. Our first choice was the Brethren Christ Hospital just off the Navajo Reservation in New Mexico where friends of ours from Messiah College uh, had already been assigned. But when we told the mission board we wanted to join them, the mission board said that they planned to close that hospital and didn't need us there, but would we consider Southern Africa, where there were four hospitals and rural health centers that badly needed medical personnel. Our first was, response was a resounding no, we don't think so. <laughs> but as we talked to mission administrators and former missionaries, our reluctance was gradually worn down and we went to Macha Hospital for two years of voluntary service in 1975. So our own story is a bit different. I grew up the son of missionaries. In fact, my parents had been Brother in Christ missionaries at Macha Hospital in Zambia for many, many years, and that's where I grew up. And so I sort of went through a somewhat rebellious period of my life during college and medical school with no plans to ever work as a missionary as my parents had. My wife, Elaine, grew up in Dillsburg, just down the road from Grantham, and we met during the time I was in school here at Messiah, and sub subsequently got married after my first year of medical school at Temple in Philadelphia. And after Elaine had finished her nursing school and I had finished my medical school and, and internship, uh, we heard that there was a need for a doctor in Matcha, the same place I grew up, and so we agreed to go there for, again, two years of voluntary service, making it very clear it was just two-year commitment. For us to go to live at Matcha and work there in 1976, a year after John and Esther had gone, was really, to be honest, more of just an adventure. Uh, basically, I was taking my wife and my, our young daughter back to see where I grew up. And there certainly was no desire or commitment to be a missionary at that point. But interestingly, God had other plans in our lives, other plans for our lives. And while working those two years of voluntary service, in addition to being blessed with two twin boys born there at Matcha, and incidentally living next door to the Spuriers, so we got to know them very, very well, God worked in both Elaine and my own life and gave each of us a calling to long-term commitment to work at Matcha as full-time missionaries. So after returning to the U.S. for additional training in pediatrics, we went, we went back there in the early 80s. 
Now, I think it's important to state that whatever we have been able to witness and see in southern Zambia and at Macha Mission Hospital during our many years of missionary service and the stories we have to tell are really built on the backs of many, many others who followed God's great commission. Many of you know that the North American Brethren in Christ Church began mission work in Southern Africa in the late 1800s in the country now called Zimbabwe. And then in the early 1900s, a new outreach uh, was done up to further interior in the country and established a place called Macha Mission, just north of Victoria Falls, which happens to be one of the seven natural wonders of the world. And that's in the country now called Zambia. There were two Brother in Christ missionaries, women who were working then at Matopo Mission in Zimbabwe, and they felt the call to go north. And they went together with two young Zimbabwean men who were converts at Matopo Mission and trekked north across the Zambezi River of Victoria Falls and went to this place now called Macha. I've often said that they had a lot more uh, stamina than I probably ever would have to do that, a lot more courage as well. In addition to planting a new church and a hospital, sorry, in addition to, to planting a new church and beginning a primary school, health work began at Macha in the 1920s. And in 1954, my father and mother were sent to Macha uh, my dad was a doctor, and his job was to build a hospital uh, and establish a, a larger health ministry there. By the time John and I uh, and our wives arrived in the mid-70s, in addition to the hospital, there was now a nursing school, there was a girls' high school, um, several small clinics had been built in that larger community. And although John and I were primarily involved in the health ministry of the church, our wives were involved in many aspects of community outreach and community engagement, working with women, groups, etc. But as couples, we were also involved in the local church, and actually both of us were on teams that helped to do church planting in the local community to establish more local churches in the little villages around the Macha. If you went to Macha today, 40 years forward from when we first went there, you'd find a very large, vibrant community that's really like a small town. Uh, there's a large BIC church there, and on a Sunday morning, it's not unusual to see five or 600 people in that congregation, at least before COVID days. Uh, there are two primary schools and two high schools situated on the mission. Uh, there's a 200-bed hospital with a nursing school. There's a research institute, a sport and learning center, and most recently, a community library. And all of these are situated on the church-owned land and are seen as part of the ministry of the Brethren in Christ Church in Zambia. I think it's, it's important to understand that this large, multifaceted ministry of the church there came about because of the many faithful people who down through the years followed the commandments of Jesus as given in the Great Commission, which we read before. Now, there's one advantage, or maybe more, of being older. Uh, and that is, you're old enough to look back and see where you've come from. And having worked at Macha now for nearly a 45-year period gives us a certain perspective of seeing how God has worked in that community. As we think of the challenges of a pandemic like COVID that's taking the whole world, I'd like to give you two examples of how we worked at Macha uh, to help overcome public health challenges in that community.
The first one is measles. In the 1980s uh, in Zambia, measles, the type of measles called rubiola, uh, was a huge problem. It was very common among children. Uh, half of the beds in our pediatric ward were often full of kids with measles, severe enough to be admitted, and we had around 15%, or one out of six children with measles admitted with die, would die. Now, this was at a time when in the U.S. we already had a vaccine for measles, and in fact, we had controlled measles in not only the U.S., but many parts of the world. But in Zambia, it was, it was not controlled. The vaccine was not readily available at that time. And yet, at some, some years at Machu, we would see over 400 cases of, of measles admitted. And then the measles vaccine came available in Zambia. It was, it was provided by UNICEF, uh, an, an organization that's part of United Nations. But it really wasn't available for distribution in the local community, in a rural community like, like Macha. And certainly the acceptance of vaccine was not very great. You have to understand that in that culture, uh, certainly just as in the Western culture many years ago, diseases were not seen as being caused by germs. Um, and so if, if you're working in a situation where there's really no belief in diseases caused by germs, trying to convince people to take an injection is not very easy. But as we saw these kids suffering from measles, we agreed that we needed to do something about it now that a vaccine was available in the country. So I began an effort to go out into the local villages to meet with community leaders and try to get them to agree for us to come out at the hospital and give immunizations to the children in the communities. Friday afternoons used to be my designated time to hop on our co-owned um, motorbike. We had a dirt bike, and uh, I would love to go out riding out Friday afternoons and have meetings with many of the, the local leaders to try to help them understand the concept of a vaccine and how we thought this could help make a difference. And so this developed with the help of many people and the permission of the local villages. We developed a public health program helping with immunizations. And this advanced measles program uh, was able to actually bring a lot of differences in measles cases. Within a few years, we were able to get the immunization rate up to over 80%, and we saw measles basically go away. If you look at that graphic, which I hope you can see, uh, the green line shows the immunization rate climbing, and the red bars show the cases. And you can see after 1983, it dropped dramatically. There was a little bit of an outbreak uh, a few years later, but since then, it's gone away. We do not see measles in Zambia anymore. The immunization rates are extremely high. And really, over the last 30 years, we've probably only seen at the most 20 cases in a 30-year period. What made the difference? An effective vaccine. Not only effective vaccine, but working together with a community who would accept it, who had trust in the people who were bringing it and therefore accepting it. And doing all that in the name of Jesus as we reached out in love to the people in that community. I think when we consider COVID and of course the hope for an effective vaccine to control that infection, uh, we need to realize that without community trust and acceptance, it's going to be extremely hard to achieve that 75 to 80% immunization rate, which you need to control these kind of viral infections. Second example is while it was very gratifying to see measles go away, uh, by the 1990s and into the early part of this century, 
malaria had become the number one cause of pediatric admission and pediatric deaths in our area. Malaria not only killed over 100 children some years at Matcha, but on average we had over 1,400 admissions per year of severe, moderate to severe malaria. And, and basically, after watching these innocent children suffer, and many of them die from a disease that had been eliminated in many parts of the world, except for Africa, uh, it really troubled me. And so we once again set about having meetings uh, with community participants, uh, meeting with the leaders, meeting with headmen, meeting with pastors, meeting with teachers, anyone in the community who had some influence, and even that included traditional healers in the communities, all in an effort to get the community on board with a new program that we had proposed using some of the new medications that had come available for malaria and also some of the new diagnostics. And so by around 2003, 2004, uh, we got most people to agree for us to start a program called Test and Treat. And actually, this was a fairly novel way to attack malaria. Up until that time, people got treated for malaria once you were sick. But we said, why not go out there first and just test everyone, test entire communities, and if we find someone who's carrying malaria, let's treat them. And so that test and treat program began, and amazingly, within a few years again, the malaria cases started dropping off dramatically. Now, I've simplified a program that involved many people working for many long hours, over many years to see this happen. But if you look carefully at that graphic with both deaths and, and uh, just admissions shown, I think you'll see that we had about a 95% reduction in malaria after this program got going in the early 2000s. And it, it has stayed low, it hasn't gone away, but malaria is quite rare now in the Matcha area. As, as this was happening, we established a Malaria Research Institute there at Matcha. And in fact, uh, for me, that's taken most of my time and commitment over the last 20 years, as I've been very involved in developing that research institute to not only research on malaria, but many other diseases. That institute currently has over 80 full-time employees, and we do work in collaboration with many other places, including the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. But, but for, for me, seeing both adults and children no, now being able to go through their life without getting the usual three to four attacks of malaria per year has been extremely gratifying. One of my main roles at Matcha was doing surgery, which I love to do. But another area um, became a big focus for me as the disease HIV and AIDS came to our community. From 1986, we saw our first cases of measles, and from then until 2005, AIDS was a death sentence in our community. We could help people to feel better, but we could not treat the virus. And, and it was devastating. There were multiple deaths. We had five to eight deaths in, in our staff every year. We went to a funeral every week. And, and it was just a, almost a depressing time to work in the hospital. During this time, the churches in Zambia, along with NGOs and the government, had a major emphasis 
on education of people and trying to get people to change their behavior which contributed to this disease. And that was to a significant extent successful. The number of new cases in the country dropped from 4% of the population to 1.8% of the population, which is a significant drop. But then it didn't go any lower. I guess the people who changed their behavior had changed and the rest weren't going to. But then in 2005, we opened our antiretroviral therapy clinic where we gave antiretrovirals, ARVs, the drugs that actually treat the disease, to patients. The results were, were dramatic. Deaths went down, funeral, very few funerals, and if people took their medicine correctly, after a few months, people could return to a normal life. Zambia was a great country to work in with HIV and AIDS. The Ministry of Health um, developed one training program for treating the disease, one treatment protocol. There was one pipeline for medicine, one distribution source for medicine, and one electronic medicine, medical records for the whole country for everybody who was working in HIV and AIDS. I doubt if we could do that in our country. We had, like Phil showed with, with the malaria um, and with the measles, we had extensive educational meetings with everybody in the community, teachers, pastors, chiefs, headmen, traditional healers, to try and help them understand the transmission and the treatment of this disease. By 2016, we had registered over 10,000 patients in our ART clinic. And while after about six months of treatment, most of them returned to a normal life. But we knew that there was no cure for the disease. We knew that when people took the ARVs within about six months, they no longer gave it to other people, but they still had it and had to take the medicine the rest of their lives. And as more and more patients were enrolled, it cost more and more money, mostly supplied by aid organizations, and we were concerned about the long-term um, supply of that money and the long-term outcome of the program. An article was published in the Lancet Medical Journal about a test and treat program, like what you heard Phil talk about with malaria for HIV. Modeling said that if you tested 100% of people once a year and put everybody who was HIV positive on ARVs, in 10 years there would be very few new cases, and when those who currently had the disease died, the, the disease would essentially go away. We got really excited about the possibility of that because it was using the same um, idea that we, that we used in malaria with treating asymptomatic people, and we'd seen it work so well with malaria. But we knew that we were going to have, have to have community buy-in if we were going to test everybody, because even then there was some resistance to being tested. 
So I met with the chief. The chief arranged for Phil and I to have a three-day seminar with the senior headman. During that time, we all had a test. We all read the result of our test to each other, even though three people were positive during that time. That was something that was unheard of in Zambia at that time. Then we, getting behind here, Chief Macha and his senior headmen, and then he arranged for us to meet with all the headmen and their wives and the community leaders and the community at large, and they were very excited as well to think of the possibility of the end of AIDS, like we saw malaria go away. And they said they would do whatever, whatever they could to help us. As a result of their support, in 2017, we tested over 70,000 people in the Macha area and put everybody who was positive on ARVs. And as a result of that, Macha became a, one of the places in Zambia with the lowest number of new cases of HIV. We went from enrolling 100 people a month to enrolling one or two a month. And the other evidence of the effectiveness of this is in pregnant women. Women who are pregnant and positive for HIV transmit the disease to their babies 40% of the time. The women at Macha Hospital Antenatal Clinic all got ARVs if they were HIV positive, and there has not been a positive baby from those women in the last eight years. So I think you can see we have a lot to praise God for. As I said earlier, being old has advantages. You can look back and see those changes. But in many ways, I think the challenge of COVID is similar to these other infectious diseases that we've seen at Macho over the years. And the main key is to understand the disease, where it comes from, how do you get it, how it's spread, and what you can do to treat it or at least prevent it. And I would submit that doing that requires using scientific methods and being willing to learn along the way. God tells us not to be afraid. Um, and I've said in the beginning during these tough COVID times that we should not have fear. We should have respect for this virus, but we don't need to fear it. We've been fortunate at the Research Institute at Macha to have all the equipment on site already and, and trained lab techs. Uh, to do the diagnostic that's needed to test for, for COVID, which is a method called PCR. We've used it many years for, for our malaria work. And so when we ran into a situation in Zambia where, where testing capability was very rare, uh, we worked with the government to offer to them our services using our equipment and our lab techs to test for HIV. And so we have become the testing center for the whole southern part of Zambia. Uh, we've also been fortunate uh, to hear that the Grantham Church is planning on giving some of the, the in-gathering offering to help us to continue, to continue that work and expand it, and we're thankful for that. Uh, we've also been fortunate to have managed to get a couple grants from the NIH in recent months to expand our COVID work and try to understand as people in that area get the COVID virus, uh, how do they react to it in terms of their immunity and how it's transmitted. So there's still work to be done. 
I would also mention that you might be interested in thinking about COVID. We've actually had a research study going on at Matcha for the last two years on influenza. And as many of you know, when COVID came around, uh, many people recommend certain mitigation efforts to try to prevent COVID. And by now, I think we're all familiar with them. Uh, things like social distancing, stop shaking hands with everyone, wash your hands, wear masks, um, don't touch your face, all those, those good ideas. And what's interesting is those mitigation efforts haven't worked very well for COVID, it seems. However, they've worked dramatically well for influenza. Uh, last year, in last year by September, we had had over 82 cases of influenza seen at Matcha. This year, from January till now, we've had zero. Flu has gone away because of these mitigation efforts. It's worked for flu. It's not only at Matcha. I'm on, a, on Zoom calls every week with with other groups that are working on influenza and COVID, and the same has been seen in other parts of the southern hemisphere, which has just gone through its winter time. And so in Vietnam, Australia, Argentina, they're seeing hardly any influenza anymore. What does that all mean? Well, I think it means that there are things that can work, and we need to use our God-given knowledge to overcome pandemics such as COVID, whether it's here in the U.S. or in Zambia or any other country. But as you've heard, it'll take a concerted effort by everyone in the community working together and with one goal, to stop the spread of the virus. In the same way that COVID has disrupted the normal way we have done business or church or school or other activities here in the U.S., COVID will certainly impact the way we have done international Christian ministry and missions. But I believe that God is in control, God is with us, and the Great Commission is still valid. In Luke 10, 8 and 9, Jesus gave his disciples, when he sent the 72 out, another command. He said, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. We were welcomed in Zambia far beyond our expectation. We ate with the people, and, and by that, I think it's more than just eating. It's relating, as Phil has told you. Our wives were active in the community. I played on the local soccer team. We were active in the local church. We visited people, but when you ate in a Zambian home, it wasn't quick because it often started by one of the children catching the chicken that you were going to eat for dinner that night. We spent most of our time healing people. So what about the telling? Shortly after arriving in Zambia, we read a book by a Zimbabwean, Pius Wagatama, which said all missionaries should go home. So we were unsure what our role in the church should be. We knew that our role in the hospital was very much needed, but what about the church? Early on, we met a young Zambian teacher who after marriage and after theological training became our pastor. It was Pastor Enoch Shamapani who came to us and said, does the Holy Spirit speak to you? We need to hear from you as members of our congregation. If you think we're just gonna do what you say because you're a missionary, those days are long gone, but we need you to hear from you in the life of our church. That really freed us to participate fully more fully in the life of the church. 
we we were active, very active in our local church. We were we were active in men's meetings and women's meetings. We taught Sunday school. We preached occasionally. And Phil said we were we were part of church planting teams during our time in Zambia. The local Macha church started seven daughter churches, and we were part of several of, of those efforts. Esther and I um, led an Alpha evangelistic um, course um, every year in our home for a number of years, either in our home or Chris and Marla's books home. And that was just a wonderful time for us, a time where you spend 15 or 16 weeks getting to know people and talking about things that matter. And, and a few people came to, to, to new faith, and all of us were enriched in our faith during those times. But we felt that Zambians could do the telling more effectively than we could. The hospital had two to four full-time chaplains appointed by the Zambian Brethren in Christ Church who ministered spiritually and provided care to our patients and to our staff in the hospital. The contribution that the hospital makes to church outreach in Zambia um, is illustrated by a comment that Reverend Charles and Semini um, made to me. It's a picture of our chaplains. Um, that Reverend Charles and Semini made to me a few years ago at Roxbury. He was then the principal of Sikalonga Bible Institute. He's now the bishop of the church. We were talking about church planting and the importance of church planting in, in the mission effort. And I said, well, I'm not a church planter, but I think that I contribute to the effort. And he looked at me and he said, you are a church planter. He said, when we go to plant a church, the people who are the most responsive are people who've been treated at Matcha Hospital. It's been our privilege to share with you today about the blessing that has come to us from following Jesus' commands in the Great Commission. As I reflect on our journey over the last 45 years, we did not have a big call that kept us going back again and again. But we had learned to say yes to Jesus over and over again. So I would like to end with an observation and a challenge. The observation is this. Saying yes to Jesus is a process and not an event. It may start with an event for some people, but it's a daily process of saying yes to Jesus. And the challenge is this. The Great Commission is for all of us, for all of you, and not just for cross-cultural mission workers. I challenge each of you to say yes to Jesus every day and in every situation. In this political climate and in COVID, that might mean a few things. It might mean wearing a mask when you don't really want to and don't think you need to because it's effective and it's an expression of love for someone else. 
like Phil said with his flu study, it makes a difference. It might mean getting a vaccine when we have a safe and effective vaccine, even if you don't want to, you don't think you need to, or you're a bit afraid to, because we know that we need 75 or 80% of people to get that vaccine in, in order to protect everyone. And protect everyone is loving everyone, which Jesus commanded us to do. It might mean listening to your Democratic or your Republican neighbor who you absolutely disagree with and you don't understand, there's no way you can understand how they think that way, but to listen to them with respect and not plan your argument ahead of time before they've even gotten done speaking. Listening, truly listening, is loving. And that's what Jesus commanded us to do. As we say yes to Jesus every day, we will be changed, the world will be changed, and I'm convinced that some of you will come to experience the fulfillment and the blessing that we've experienced in cross-cultural ministry. Thank you and God bless you.